Second Samuel chapter 17. Second Samuel chapter 17. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 342. Page 342. Over the past few chapters of Second Samuel, we've been seeing David deal with the fallout of his own sin. He, he committed a sin of commission when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then covered it up by having her husband murdered. He committed a sin of omission when his daughter Tamar was assaulted and he did not do anything about that. And so we've been seeing David deal with the consequences of what he did and what he did not do. And one of the most enduring consequences has been the rebellion of his own son Absalom. This morning we finally arrive at the big showdown. This is what everything has been leading up to, the battle between those loyal to Absalom and those who have remained loyal to David. We might expect the author to give us a highly detailed description of this battle. It's something that he's been building up to for several chapters now. It's a fight between fellow Israelites. He tells us that 20,000 people died in this battle. So it seems like it would be something that would be worth you know, a chapter or two of, of, of detail. Instead, as we read this morning, I want you to notice how little we're told about this battle itself. The author sums it up basically in three verses. Instead, he focuses our attention elsewhere on the kindness that God shows to David before the battle on David's concern for Absalom's safety, ironically, and on the details of Absalom's death. So it's a reminder to us that the story of the Old Testament is not just about Israel. And God's primary purpose in the Old Testament is not to just give us a history of Israel. If that were the case, then we would it would require a lot of detail here because this is a massive battle within Israel in which 20,000 people die in a single battle. That's not God's primary purpose. While what he tells us is historically true, it is more than a historical record of what happened in the ancient Near East. It is first and foremost from God, and it is about God. His purpose is to reveal himself. His purpose is to show us how he was working to send a Redeemer, not just for Israel, but for all nations. And so as we read, we have to discipline ourselves to read it in that way. We can read this prayerfully. We can ask the Spirit of God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, not just a history lesson on Israel, but a revealing of Israel's God. And so let's read together prayerfully that the Lord would do that for us. So we're going to pick up in chapter 17, verse 24. First, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 17, verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lothavar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, 
basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Let's pause there and pray together. Lord, we need your help today to hear this as a word from you, um, revealing your character. Um, and so, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to show and say to us from your word today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this passage is filled with rabbit trails that we could easily follow. We could spend plenty of time on who these three men were who refreshed David and his men in Mahanaim. We could discuss all the specifics of Absalom and David's respective battle strategies. We could examine all the ironies surrounding Absalom's death. We could wrestle with the question of whether Joab was right or wrong to dis disobey David by taking Absalom's life. We're going to peek down some of those rabbit trails, but I, I don't want us to get so distracted by 
peripheral matters that we miss the character of God on display. In particular, I want us to see, as, as odd as it may be to say, that we can see a great deal of the Lord's kindness to David in the midst of all this. God's kindness often comes in unexpected ways. It surprises us, and that's certainly true of the way the Lord shows His kindness to David. So I want to give us a big idea for this passage, and then we'll see how that p- plays out in the, in the chapter itself. So the big idea is that God is kind in ways that do not fit our minds. God is kind in ways that do not fit our minds. As we'll see, His kindness to us is no different His kindness comes to David in very unusual and unexpected ways, and His kindness to us comes in a very unusual and unexpected way. We're going to see two ways that the Lord was kind to David, and then we'll see how these relate to us. So two ways that the Lord was kind to David. First, He was kind to him by sustaining him in a difficult time. The Lord was kind to him by sustaining David in a difficult time. We see that in chapter 17, verses 24 through 29. Last week, um, Absalom was trying to figure out what to do about David. He was trying to come up with a strategy for this battle. And David had a friend named Hushai who went and gave David some intentionally bad advice. There was a counselor named Ahithophel who said, you need to strike fast. You need to strike while the iron's hot. We don't need a massive battle. We just need someone to go and kill David. He understood wisely that if David dies then David's side loses all their morale and, and you win. A lot of people don't have to die, Absalom. But instead, Absalom did not listen to Ahithophel. He listened to Hushai. And rather than striking fast, he decided to gather a massive army in an attempt to overwhelm David and those loyal to him. And as we see in our story today, Absalom's strategy allows David time to escape across the Jordan River. We, we read in chapter 17, verse 24, Then David came to Mahanaim. And this place is about 37 miles north of where they crossed the Jordan. So they, they managed to get across the Jordan and then travel another 30 plus miles away. And so they, Absalom has given David ample time to regroup to get to a place that's fortified and and strategically tactical. And there in Mahanaim, the author tells us about three men who bring supplies to David and his men. The author describes this in verses 27, 28, and 29. Now, I said at the beginning that um, the author spends roughly three verses describing the battle itself. You find that in chapter 18, verses 6 through 8. We'll get to that in a second. But I just want to point out to you that the author spends roughly the same amount of space uh, describing the battle as he does describing these three men and the supplies with which they refresh David and his army. Now we can, this is is one of those rabbit trails we could go down, but we're just going to try to peek down it. Um, We could spend a lot of time here, but we won't. We can piece together some of the background of these men. I'll summarize by saying they are unexpected helpers. One of these men, Shobi, is not even an Israelite. He is a Gentile, an Ammonite. One of these men, um, Machir, was formerly a loyalist to Saul, David's enemy, the guy who tried to kill David for a long time. And then the last man, Barzillai, 
was 80. Now, nothing against 80-year-olds, um, but these men had to travel a long distance, and they had to give up a lot of wealth to refresh David. And so these, these are unexpected helpers. What stands out, the thing that you can sort of tell obviously from the text, is the timing of their help. They don't show up after the battle's over. They don't show up after David has won. They don't show up when David has gone back to Jerusalem victorious and say, Hey, we've supported you all along. They come to him before the battle is even fought. This is incredibly risky for them. They, they surely are aware of the massive numbers that Absalom has on his side. If David and his side suffers defeat, these three men will have backed a loser. And do you think that Absalom is going to look kindly on them after the fact if David loses? Probably not. So they risk their lives, quite literally. They give up their wealth to support David because, after all, he is God's anointed. He may not have a whole lot going for him right now, but he is the Lord's anointed. And this is more than the kindness of three men. It is the Lord's kindness to his anointed king. So one way we could say it is that Absalom is attacking the kingdom of God, but the Lord is protecting it. As David wrote in Psalm 23, 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai are God's instruments of doing just that, of preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies. The Lord is kind to David by sustaining him in a difficult time. The second way we see the Lord's kindness to David is by sparing him from a difficult choice. We see this in chapter 18. The Lord is kind to David by sparing him from a difficult choice. I want us to notice something about chapter 18. I want, to, want you to notice who is active. So going back to grammar school, learning about subjects and verbs, if you pay attention to the subjects of these sentences, who is the one who is acting? Well, in verses 1 through 5, David is acting. He is busy. Notice verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him. So who did that? David did. Who set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? David did that. He's assembling and organizing troops. Verse 2. And David sent out the army. One-third under the command of Joab. One-third under the command of Abishai. Uh, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. So David is the one who sends them out under these three commanders. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. This is where David hits a snag. Because his men recognize the same truth that Ahithophel recognized, which is this is really not a battle between these two massive armies. This is a battle between Absalom and David. Whichever one of them comes out on the other side of this is the one who's going to be king. If Absalom dies, his side ceases their rebellion. If David dies, his side is going to come under Absalom's authority. So there, this is not any normal battle. These are unusual circumstances. And so as they put it to David, your death would be like the death of 10,000 of us. If half of us die, no big deal. There, there's not a, a huge number of people with David. But if you die, it's all... It's as if 10,000 of us have died. So they convince David to stay in the city. He stands at the gate and watches as the army marches out. And then notice verse 5. 
And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. So verses 1 through 5, David is the one who's active. He is mustering troops. He is setting uh, commanders over them. He's organizing them. He's sending them out and he's giving orders to his commanders about what to do and what not to do on the battlefield. From that point on, verse 6 on, once the battle itself begins, David is completely inactive. He is not the subject of a single verb from verses 6 through 18. He does nothing. He is sitting in the city uh, just waiting to hear news about what happens. And the fact that David is not personally present on the battlefield, the fact that he's not active in this is going to prove immensely important because of what happens. It's not just a fluke of history. It's not one of those things that just kind of happened. It's a sign of God's kindness to him. The Lord is sparing him from a difficult choice. So again, the author sums up the battle in verses 6 through 8. And then once he's done that, he zeroes in on two men. Not David, but these two other men. David's son, Absalom, and David's commander, Joab. That's where the author focuses our attention because that is where we can see God's kindness to David most clearly. So let's start with Absalom. Back in chapter 14... The author described Absalom to us. And in First and Second Samuel, anytime you see a character who is described in solely superficial terms, that's a bad sign for that person. The first thing we heard about Saul was that he was wealthy from a good family and that he was tall. We didn't hear anything about his character, nothing about whether he was devoted to the Lord, nothing about whether he, he was devoted to God's Word or anything like that, that he was righteous, just that he was wealthy and tall. And in 2 Samuel 14, we're introduced to Absalom, same thing. He, the author describes how handsome he was. He was more handsome than anyone else in all of Israel. Not a single blemish anywhere on his body from the, the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And then the author describes how thick Absalom's hair was. He talks about how every time he had to get a haircut, they weighed it because they were so impressed at how much hair was there on his head. Now with that in mind, notice what happens here in chapter 18, verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. The author doesn't say exactly what happened. It could be that Absalom's head, you know, somehow got wedged in the fork of some kind of branch. Most people have taken this to mean, however, because of what the author's already told us about Absalom, that he's going under this thick tree and his hair, his thick hair gets caught in the branches. And he is, either way, whether it's his, you know, head or his hair, He's, he's hanging there, totally defenseless, and he has no, no mule, nothing to ride on, no royal um, animal, which mules were royal animals in this time. And so this is where the author turns his attention to Joab. One thing that's clear uh, about Joab is that he was fully aware of David's command not to harm Absalom. Notice the end of verse 5. This is when David has just given them that order. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. The author says, And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. It was not a secret. It was well known. In fact, David probably gave the command to them in a public place so that everyone would hear it. 
So when in the course of the battle someone finds Absalom hanging from the tree and goes and reports it to David, notice the exchange they have. Look at verse 11. Joab said to the man, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Now, maybe, maybe, Ab, maybe Joab forgot. Okay, so notice what happens next. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. So just in case Joab maybe forgot, which is very unlikely, but just in case he forgot what David said, he's reminded now. He clearly knows about David's command. And despite his obvious awareness, he picks up three javelins and he goes and he disobeys David's orders and he kills Absalom. Now we're going to set aside the question of whether Joab was right or wrong. That's one of those rabbit trails that we're just going to peek down today. We're going to go down at full steam next Sunday, Lord willing. We could, we're going to set that question aside as to whether he was right or wrong to disobey David's command and kill Absalom. Um, for today, it's enough to see um, whether Joab was right or wrong that God mercifully spared David from a nearly impossible choice through Joab's actions. What do I mean by that? Let's think about it. Unless Absalom repents and ceases his rebellion, and there is no indication that he would do that. Apart from that, David basically has two options. His two options are, first, he could take Absalom's life, or he could continue enduring Absalom's rebellion. If he doesn't kill Absalom and Absalom doesn't repent, then Absalom's going to keep rebelling, keep pulling people away from him, keep being a thorn in his side. And so without answering the question of whether Joab was right or wrong, can't we see that the Lord worked through Joab's actions to take this choice out of David's hands? David did not have to take Absalom's life, nor did he have to order others to do so. In fact, he did the opposite of that. Nor did David have to continue enduring Absalom's rebellion. So he doesn't have to take Absalom's life. He doesn't have to endure his rebellion. God takes that decision out of David's hands. The Lord spared David just as he had sustained him. So again, whether Joab was right or wrong, the Lord is kind to David to spare him from a difficult choice. Over and over the Lord has shown His faithfulness to the covenant He made with David. And over and over His kindness has come to David in surprising ways. The Lord is kind in ways that do not fit our minds. And I said at the beginning that God's kindness to us is no different. God was kind to us in surprising and unexpected ways. God's kindness came to David through a man named Hushai who showed up with his clothes torn and dirt all over him. His kindness came to him through a commander named Joab whose actions were maybe a little bit morally ambiguous. His kindness came to David through a woman in Bahurim who lied and said she hadn't seen Absalom's servants. We saw that last week. Over and over and over again, the Lord's kindness comes to David in unexpected ways. 
And God's kindness came to us through a humble, ordinary-looking baby born in Bethlehem who grew up to be a carpenter and itinerant preacher who was executed like a criminal outside Jerusalem. That's a very odd way for God to show kindness to us, and yet that's what He has done. And so this story in 2 Samuel points us to that story, the story of Jesus. I want to show you one, at least one particular way that we can hear a whisper of the name of Jesus and maybe just see a shadow of the cross cast over this story. It has to do with the way that Absalom died and the way that he was buried. Look with me at verse 17, chapter 18, verse 17. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. Now, that's one of those rabbit trails we could trace, but we're not going to do that. I simply will say, and you'll, you can take my word and go research this later. For whatever reason, being buried under a heap of stones in the Old Testament is a sign that the person buried in that way died under God's curse. The only people in the Old Testament who were ever buried under a heap of stones, and there are a handful of them, they all died under God's curse. Even more obvious, however, is that Absalom was hanging from a tree. Deuteronomy 21 clearly says that someone hanged from a tree is cursed by God. And so by pointing out that detail about his death and about the way he was buried, the author is signaling to us that Absalom died under God's curse. Absalom is cursed so that the Lord can show kindness to David. Now listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He says, "...for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse." For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand uh, because I know the answer to this question. But if I were to ask who in this room has broken at least one commandment in the Bible, every single one of us should raise our hand. And if you don't, then maybe we need to go and read the Ten Commandments and think through them a little bit more carefully. Every one of us, I, I hope we could agree, we have broken at least one. Now, we won't get into how many, but just one. That's all I need. That's all I need for the sake of this point. Paul says, quoting from Scripture, quoting from the Old Testament, that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So even if you have only broken one commandment, you and I are all like Absalom. We are under God's righteous curse. Now, does that sound unfair to you? Well, just keep reading there in Galatians 3. There's good news. Paul goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and now he quotes from Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is how Absalom points us to Jesus. Absalom died under God's curse so that God could be merciful to David. Jesus died under God's curse so that God could be merciful to you and me. The difference, of course, between Jesus and Absalom is that Jesus is a perfectly obedient son. He never did anything that was deserving of the curse. Whereas Absalom was a rebellious son, Absalom did deserve the curse like you and me. 
Jesus is the one of whom God said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I, I suspect that David could probably have said, Absalom is my beloved Son, but he could not say, I'm well pleased with him. And yet Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Absalom died under God's curse because of his own rebellion. Jesus died under God's curse because of our rebellion to reconcile us to God. Jesus became like Absalom so that we could become like Jesus. One of the things I find so helpful about David is that he sinned horribly, yet he also repented boldly and clearly. David is not perfect, but he is an example to us of what it looks like for God to bring a sinner to repentance and to continue showing mercy and kindness to him despite his ongoing sinfulness. Because even when David sinned with Bathsheba and even when he had Uriah murdered and even when he failed to do anything when Tamar was assaulted and when David repented, the, the problem for David is that he was still sinful. He kept doing things that were sinful. He kept compounding guilt. And so David is a picture to us of, of God's mercy to someone who is forgiven and repentant but still sinful. As David said at the end of Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David is a picture of, of a sinner who is constantly pursued by God's mercy and kindness. And when I say that God's kindness to David is promised to us, that's not something that I'm pulling out of thin air. So I want us to turn to Isaiah 55. I want you to turn in your Bible with me to Isaiah 55. We're going to use this passage as a help for us in how we might apply what we've read in 2 Samuel. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, by the way, it should be on page 782. Isaiah 55. I want you to hear with me in Isaiah 55 that... The kindness God showed to David is promised to those who are in Christ. Look with me at Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God made an astounding promise to David. His promise was that he would be with him, that he would not forsake him, that he would give him uh, a son who would reign eternally. And here in Isaiah 55, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to say that if you are thirsty, if you are hungry, if you will come to me, incline your ear, and listen to me, then I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
the kindness that God showed to David, He promises to those who will listen to Him. You don't have to be an Israelite. You don't have to be a king. You just have to incline your ear and come to Him. In fact, God welcomes those who thirst. He welcomes those who have no money. He welcomes those who admit their spiritual poverty before Him. This is a prerequisite to being filled. You must receive what only He can provide. Jesus would say the very same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So there is a promise. There's an invitation. But there's also a warning for us this morning. The promise and the invitation is, come to Jesus and He will satisfy you. Come to the one who alone can provide what you need. That's the promise and the invitation. The warning is for those who think they don't have any need. Because that is the most dangerous way to be. The most dangerous way to be is to be thirsty but not to think you need water. To be hungry but not to think you need food. To be poor but to think you have need of nothing. This is the very thing that God warned the church at Laodicea about in Revelation 3. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So the, the invitation for us this morning... We're going to sing the invitation in just a moment. The invitation for us is to see ourselves as God sees us. Apart from Christ, the way that God sees us is wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's not me being harsh. That's not me having a low esteem of the human condition. That is the Word of God. That's how He describes humanity apart from His grace in Christ. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And He says to us, I am the only one who can give you gold that's been refined by fire. I'm the only one who can give you white garments to clothe yourself and cover the shame of your nakedness. I'm the only one who can give you salve to anoint your eyes so that you won't be blind anymore, but so that you can see. And then he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So, if you feel that discipline, then that's because God loves you. And the solution is, as he says himself, to be zealous and repent. Not to think that you're rich, not to think that you've prospered, not to think that you are in need of nothing, but to agree with God about His assessment of your condition, and come to Him to receive what only He can provide. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for 
God, how you speak so truthfully to us about our own condition apart from you. And God, how you speak to us about your willingness and your ability to remedy that condition. God, you are the one who has provided for us the righteous garments of Jesus with which we can clothe ourselves and cover the shame of our sin. God, you are the one who has provided gold refined by fire. You are the one, Lord, who has provided salve to anoint our eyes so that we may see. So God, I pray that we would receive what you have to give today. God, help us not to clench our fists and refuse to receive in pride and arrogance, but that we would humble ourselves before you. God, that we would agree with all that you've said about us and that we would also agree with your willingness and your ability to provide what we need. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you in Christ have given us all that we need for salvation. And so, Lord, help us now, God, that we would receive it and for those who have it, that we would give it freely to others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.